1: In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I sit down with Alex Hillman. Alex is always thinking about the intersection of people, relationships, trust, and business. These days, he splits his time between running Indy Hall, Philadelphia's oldest co-working space, teaching creative people how to bootstrap their own businesses, and collaborating with people and organizations towards the goal of helping 10,000 people become sustainably independent by 2029. Alex and I talk about business, creativity, community, collaboration, and his journey that led him to create Indie Hall, as well as his latest book, The Tiny NBA. We discuss the importance of trust and authenticity to build ongoing partnerships and business collaborations. It was an honor to have Alex join the podcast. I really enjoyed his insights and passion. Thanks to Alex Hillman for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Alex, thanks so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind for me and uh, the audience, could you tell me a little bit about yourself?
0: Sure, Matt. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's really great to spend some time with you and looking forward to this conversation. Um, So my background is in technology and entrepreneurship but i've never been much one for the startup scene such as it were Uh, the sort of high growth venture capital um you know build apps for whether it's the app store or social networks that's not really been my jam i'm more uh into making things putting those things on the internet uh, hopefully those things are helpful to people and uh, among the many things that I've had my fingers in from building things on the internet I've also built things offline uh, about 14 years ago started one of the first co-working spaces in the United States in the world called Indie Hall here in Philadelphia and that's also given me a vantage point into entrepreneurship both my own story and journey and experience and things like that but also getting to see individuals and large-scale patterns of solo, soul practitioners, building a business, building a practice, creating things, succeeding, struggling all those things as well uh and you know that those lenses uh have led me down a path that's been a lot of interesting uh, a lot of interesting relationships i've made lots of friends along the way which i'm most happy about I've gotten to create things which is really cool um and then in sort of parallel to the co-working space i also work with my business partner amy hoy on a website called stacking the bricks where we teach creative people Some of the entrepreneurial skills that we've learned along the way, specifically focused on helping people make a shift from service-based businesses where you're typically trading time for money into product businesses where you can create something once and sell it over and over and over. Typically online products, digital products, things like that. But the stuff we teach is not specific to any sort of product. So sort of a weird journey from maker, entrepreneur, educator. Uh, I feel like that sums up a lot lot of my world uh, uh, pretty concisely.
1: Great. Thank you. It's, so you're wearing a lot, a lot of hats. Uh, but speaking of your journey, if you don't mind going back, what do you think inspired you along the way to be an entrepreneur?
0: Um, <laughs> I like to say that I'm emotionally unemployable. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, my, on, a lot of things inspired it. The most obvious thing, I was fortunate enough to grow up with an entrepreneur in my family. My dad worked for himself basically his entire career as well. First as a chiropractor running a solo practice. And then later in the life, took a very strange twist himself into running a, um, like a, a carpentry home remodeling business. That was a sole business as well. But I watched my dad do his own thing. Uh, and the other part of it was my, my experiences in the workforce, made me feel like a lot of stuff just didn't work for me. It didn't make sense. And some of that stems from, I don't know, you could say a a problem with authority maybe. Um, But at the end of the day, like I see a problem, I wanna solve a problem. And I feel like a lot of the environments of of the workplace, whether it's because of politics or communication or resources, legitimate reasons or less legitimate reasons, if I couldn't make the change happen, I would get frustrated. I would get depressed. I would do be bad at the job I'm there to do. Uh, so after sort of a journey through working at creative agencies and big corporations, realized, you know, I feel like the the most likely path here is I'm going to have to kind of carve out my own thing. And was fortunate enough to be able to do that on the side before I left the supposed stability of a full-time job uh, to do it my own way. So even when I was leaving a job to become and follow a more entrepreneurial path, it wasn't like quit job. Okay, I'm starting from zero. I had years of professional relationships built up. I had already started doing some creative freelancing on the side. I had partnered with people who were maybe better at selling things like that than I was. And those kinds of things made the jump, as a lot of people tend to describe it, feel a lot less like a jump. It was more of a, almost like an inevitability, honestly. I couldn't imagine doing it another way because I was so unhappy at a job where I felt like I was being constricted and constrained and I wanted to grow, but the opportunities that were being presented either didn't make sense or they were being you know, sort of strung along Whereas I had this after-hours opportunity to work with interesting clients and collaborators, and people valued my input and my creativity, and I was like, "Why wouldn't? If I can get paid to do that, why wouldn't I do that?" Um, and I feel like a lot of creative people, f- for them, that's the dream. Uh, to be honest, it's not always dreamy, but I feel like that was that was the the, the bait that that certainly got me on the hook.
1: Right on. Thanks. As I'm as I'm hearing you talk, uh, and I might be oversimplifying this, but a theme that seems to come up too is uh, the ability or inability for one to bring their authentic self to their work being such a, a critical part of happiness and satisfaction. And so it, it sounds like to, uh, I'm assuming here, uh, but it sounds like you being able to be you is... A, of the reward of of entrepreneurship
0: it's only me i know how to be (laughs) matt (laughs) no you're totally right uh you know and i think part of it is like i'm really bad at faking it uh i and so like my poker face is garbage so if i'm unhappy at work a manager or a boss is gonna see it what they do with it can vary pretty widely you know some managers and bosses will see that and be thoughtful and proactive and try and figure out how to bring out the best in you but i feel like a lot a lot don't Um, and you know, the flip side of that is, is when you're your own boss, it's now your responsibility to do all of those things. And that's been its own set of interesting, challenging lessons that I don't think there's a school that teaches you how to do that. You kind of have to go through it.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I want to talk to, so a lot of interesting things to talk to you about, but I I want to dig in on Indie Hall. I want to get to your, your latest book and want to talk to. To you about stacking the bricks as well, but why don't we start with with Indie Hall? Can you tell me how uh, like, like co working? I think is is entered the general lexicon now, but you said fourteen years ago uh, it it didn't sound, it probably didn't sound normal. So I'm kind of curious on what was your maybe insight and inspiration to take that on?
0: Really, really great observation. You're totally right that I think now uh, co working has become something like Kleenex or Xerox, where there's a a word that is into the lexicon that means even a category of things, not just one specific thing. At the time, it was sort of an inspiration from some folks on the West Coast who were like me, making stuff on the Internet. And because they were in San Francisco, I also had this perspective of, wow, all the people with the freedom and creativity are in San Francisco. Maybe I should go there. I was feeling really isolated in Philadelphia, and I'd gone on to do this freelance journey, but I didn't know many other freelancers, and I could look around my city of Philadelphia and say, well, where are the other people like me? And remember, there's not only no coworking, but there's no meetup.com. There's no, uh, you know, technology, community, culture, infrastructure. Like, there's not a way to find my professional peers because that industry was really nascent and young everywhere except this one place 3000 miles away <laughs> and i kept you know uh, building the relationship with this this um small firm and almost moved to san francisco to work with them and one of their clients and when that move fell through it kind of forced me to reflect on why i was moving in the first place and to remind myself that it wasn't for san francisco it was for those those people and if i could find people in philadelphia where i already have other relationships other social infrastructure i have clients maybe i don't have to leave philadelphia at all and so i set out on that journey to find to find those other people and as i found them the pattern that emerged was they were struggling to find other people too and that was kind of the light bulb moment for me is like, wow, if I'm trying really hard to find other people and there's, and and it's hard, there's other people that are trying that are not trying as hard as I am, and they're never going to find each other. So maybe all I need to do is be kind of the, social glue. Uh, The terminology that I use and love these days is a tummeler, a tumbler being somebody who sort of navigates these social experiences and finds opportunities to build connections, not to fuse people together, but to create opportunities for people to fuse themselves together. That's a really subtle difference. And after about six months of doing that, some of the regulars in that community who, by the way, we were going to cafes that had Wi-Fi and would let us hang out for the day. We'd hang out at the bar after a work day uh, or in the park, like anywhere we could come together. We would plus some, you know, obviously online was still very young then, but we had a chat room. There was no zoom, uh, but we had, we did have a chat room. And um, somebody said, what, what if we went to the same cafe on the same day on purpose and that was, that was another light lightbulb moment, was like, wait a second. If we're already going to cafes to get out of the house, going to a place together can create some of that social experience. And now we are more visible to other people who are going to say, well, who are you? Why? Do you work together? Kinda? Uh, we're actually all freelancers, but we do work together in formal and informal ways. And over the course of a couple of months, we started talking about what it would look like if we had our own place to do that all the time. So we weren't borrowing wifi and uncomfortable cafe seats and you know had a little better better tools for the day. And the setting up of the physical space, now almost a year after I really started actively pursuing people was less of a signing of a lease and setting up an office and then trying to go find people. And it was more like a barn raising event that it was a collective experience we were making the place together it was our place not alex's place that other people rent and that difference has really been sort of the core ethos of Indy hall to this day even though we're now you know that original group of 22 founding members is now hundreds of members the co-working space as we sit here recording today on the 17th of august is closed because of uh, uh, safety restrictions uh, and I care more about the people than than anything else but even today you know we've got all so much more space but at the core of what we do and always have done is bring people together and create sort of a center of gravity for people who are seeking other people and create on ramps to help them connect with each other the fact that it looks like an office is really just kind of an artifact of the fact that a lot of that early community were laptop workers. Who could work from anywhere but wanted a place to go to be around each other, even if it was just one or two days a week.
1: Thanks. Yeah, I know for me personally uh, for uh, my main gig with spark uh, consulting group that is I'm in a co working space in Iowa City and uh, I have I have an office there. So it's good. You know, I can shut a door, but I have 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 the facilities and probably more important, the network, the the people that you're able to connect with and kind of these loose networks of folks that you can bounce ideas off of or they're working Mm -hmm. on something. And uh, sometimes it's not even just a partner with stuff, it's just, hey, how would you handle this? And just loving that that, uh, human and support side of it. And that for me was a little bit unexpected. Like, you know, it was more like a pragmatic, let me go here and Uh, it's a place that will get me out of the house, right? But for me, the the social side has been tremendous with a lot of like-minded people just hustling and, and trying to help.
0: It's interesting, as we've grown and evolved, the experience you described, I think is more common, especially as people are... So early on, people would hear of Indy Hall and then find out later that it was co-working. Nowadays, it's the other way around. People are aware that co-working is a thing in the world, again the best like equivalent terminology is restaurant it's like learning that restaurants are a thing there's a lot of different kinds of restaurants and a lot of different kind of co-working experiences from things that are like really at the very like relationship oriented end of the spectrum to places that are really just there for the the pure function but what a lot of folks are experiencing e in the middle really are Whatever reason you show up for, the reason you stay, and the multiples of value that you get above and beyond the place to put your stuff and to sit, whether you close a door or not, is the relationships with the other people. And that is something that I, I think is a fundamental human thing. I think it's a thing that sets people apart when it comes to business and professionalism. And I think in a environment like we're living in today where physical places are in a very strange state and I you know, I run a business that is designed to do a thing that is technically very dangerous right now if you're looking at the physical proximity based, place based part of what we do but at the heart of all of that we need access to other like minded people the social support, the ability to build trust with somebody before you need something from them is nearly impossible to come by if you don't have places to go whether they are real world or online to build that trust to build those connections to build those relationships so now that we're 100 percent online we still do all of that we just do it using online tools and you know in some ways we have to do more guidance and support for people that are not necessarily as native to the online tools or just, you know, I mean, I grew up in chat rooms. So being in a chat room for part of the day or all the day is totally normal for me. It's super weird for a lot of people. Uh, and, and and not just weird, but like, why would you do that? And so it, it's one thing you have to kind of guide people to, to, to even believe that the value could be there. But then really showing them how and what to look for. There's an entire onboarding thing that we're really learning. It's almost like going back to basics where we had to learn how to teach people what a coworking space was and how to use it. We spent 14 years getting really good at that. Now we do it second nature. Now we're going back to the fundamentals and going, okay, how does that work when there's not a door, a physical door at an address to walk through, but instead a form you fill out on the internet or a piece of software that you launch. And then how do you know which software to use at what time is really not that dissimilar to when is the appropriate time to be in, you know, a cafe and a shared space versus a private office versus a conference room versus the kitchen. We even, we can intuit a lot of that because we have a lot of shared language and experience from traditional offices, but I don't think it's really all that different so long as you break it down into sort of it's, component parts. And remember that the fundamentals that don't change are people and what it takes to build a relationship. So long as we stay focused on that, whatever happens next, I feel pretty confident will be the result that people actually want, crave, and are, are willing to continue coming back for
1: thanks what uh looking back on the 14 years what was maybe the biggest surprise you know before you you went in i'm sure you know you had a you had a vision a design but what might be the biggest surprise either positive or negative about uh what happens with the uh, co-working space and collaboration
0: so i'll speak of the experiences that we've had in our community and i think one of the biggest surprises in hindsight is not surprising at all but i think when you're looking at it dead on, is is kind of surprising. Is the importance of diversity, and everybody listening is going to be like, "Really, Alex?" But what I mean by that is is not exclusively the elements of diversity, equity, and inclusion that I think are are thankfully becoming more dominant conversation when it comes to um, you know gender and and race and uh, 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 physical abilities, all, all kinds of things that we need to be more considered of, but even within the multidisciplinary nature of Indy Hall the value of diversity where most people when they work in a profession and they start building a professional network they tend to have a network that ends up being fairly limited in scope to people who are like what they do mm-hmm. and what some of the most interesting and truly, honestly, mind-blowing experiences that I've gotten to witness are when people from extraordinarily divergent industries build those relationships and then find interesting ways to collaborate, whether it's as simple as teaching one another a skill or a a technique that is common in their industry but rare in another. One of my favorite examples is you've got a lawyer sitting next to an artist. How are those two going to collaborate? Well, there's the obvious stuff where the artist might have the lawyer review a contract and the lawyer might hire the artist to redo their logo or their website or something along those lines. That does happen. What's really interesting though is when the lawyer and I'm sure you've had this experience lawyers are very good at getting paid. <laughs> Artists are not very good at getting paid. And if a and part of that is because the culture that lawyers learn in is one that shows them how to navigate the nuance of here's exactly how much you can give away for free to establish trust and credibility. And here is a socially acceptable way to navigate the transition from this, that you are now crossing the barrier from free advice to paid advice. Paid advice means a new thing, right? Lawyers are exceptionally good at this and the good ones are amazing, right? Now think about an artist. An artist who is posting tons of their work on social media to try and build a following. People love their work, they come to galleries, but they're having a hard time getting people to buy. Or people wanna hire them to you know, to embellish a piece of art, but they're not really sure how to transition somebody who loves their art to somebody who wants to hire a commission. I have seen, and I believe that this maps to so many other cross-disciplinary opportunities, a lawyer break down the way they learn, not just what they do, But the way they learned to navigate that transition for somebody in a completely different industry, part of the reason artists are so bad at selling things is because they're surrounded by artists who are also bad at selling things. So all it takes is one artist and one lawyer to become buddies and help each other in that way. And now that has the opportunity to proliferate through the entire arts ecosystem. And we've seen examples of that. So... I think you know, the, the lesson, the way I like to sum it up is we learn more from people who are less like us. And that is true of all of the other, you know, um, elements of diversity that I mentioned before when it comes to race and gender and, and all these other uh, um, areas where people either get biased or excluded. Uh, I, I think everything I'm saying here applies there as well. I just think that this one showed up for us early on and we've seen it happened so many times explicitly because there are so few professional environments that are designed to be multidisciplinary. Or if they are, it's only within like uh, AIGA, for instance, which is an amazing organization, is multidisciplinary within the realm of graphic design and print design, which has got a lot of stuff in it, but you're also limited, right? So I think the opportunity to to architect these collisions, and unlikely connections and the serendipity that stems from them has really been the magic that I did not know was gonna happen, but once I saw it, I was like, Oh, that's the thing. That's the thing that we can do and if we can do that with any degree of predict you now predictability is a funny word, but repeatability, right? I know how to architect in an environment where these things can happen. What are the root elements? Uh, It's more like gardening than than engineering, really. It's planting seeds and making sure that they have the water, soil, and sunlight to grow. Same thing with people and relationships, knowledge, opportunities. If you can, for, for me, the growth comes from trust. If we can create an environment where trust building is possible, I don't know what plant's gonna grow, but it's probably gonna be beautiful.
1: Right on. Tell me a little bit about uh, Stacking the Bricks. Did that come out of Indie Hall or was that in process before you started co-working?
0: So I had built this kind of unusual at the time business. Uh, in addition to being a, a business, it's a brick and mortar physical business. And my friend, Amy Hoy, who uh, was an internet, we met in person at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, many years ago, became friends, stayed in touch And her and her husband went on to also launch a software as a service business. So we both came from similar backgrounds, software design and development, into freelancing and consulting, and then built something else, right? Uh, In my case, it was Indie Hall. In her case, it was uh, their time tracking software, NoCo. And so I was visiting Amy and Thomas in their home in Vienna, where Thomas is from, uh, over Christmas many years ago. And Amy and I were just kind of riffing and, you know, shooting the shit and talking about how a lot of our creative friends were hopping from startup job they hated to startup job they hated to corporate job they hated to startup job they hated, maybe occasionally going out, raising a bunch of venture, venture capital to create a company that they hated. Um, <laughs> but the, the theme was like, they, they were sort of circling around, but never quite getting to the whole world of alternatives that exist in between the extremes right and so we asked ourselves why and when they do try what are they either not seeing or doing incorrectly or setting themselves up for struggle or failure and what did we do differently like we're not special we made some different choices we are not like we both don't come from money we are you know made make our own money didn't have big loans. We didn't have parents to give us lots of money. So, like the things that I think people think of when they think of an entrepreneur is like, oh yeah, it's easier when you've got money. You know, we, we started this from from our own foundation, um, as well as obviously the privileges that we have as as uh, you know people with the skills that we have, the access to te- technology and things like that. But I said, well, what do we know that they don't? And so we started an outline, and the outline was basically from. I wanna launch something that people will buy to launch day in your first sale. What are all the things you need to do between there? And notice that it doesn't start with an idea, right? And that's a big part of the thing is, is people think a business starts with an idea. And a lot of the business narrative starts with an idea. And for us, it's starting with the decision that you wanna create something that makes sales, right? And then the figuring out the something doesn't necessarily stem from an idea. It stems from a deep understanding of who it is you're creating things for. And this is where things I think get interesting into your realm as a designer and a researcher. And what we realized through the first several iterations of Stacking the Bricks and the the online course that we were creating was there was a lot of stuff that was obvious to us, but not obvious to other people. It was obvious to us that it made sense to, if you have advantages, use them, right? If If you already exist in an industry and you're trying to sell products to people who work in a completely different industry, then you are at a disadvantage. It's not to say that you can't and that people aren't successful, but now you have to overcome that disadvantage. And you already have disadvantages to overcome, so why would you go create new ones?
1: Right, right. Yeah, because like, a, a couple things there, and I can already, and and obviously we'll dig in. I can already see some of the themes from that that made it in your book, Tiny MBA. But uh, yeah, a couple things there is the notion of the idea is one of the things that I think a lot of organizations struggle with is. Um, one, understanding the customer. What what do they really need? What are they trying to accomplish? You know, kind of needs goals. And what does the customer think they'll actually do if they get to reach that goal, right, to kind of extend that further? So I see that because you know, I, I try to frame things in, in my business with helping create and capture value. And the creation is so that you're doing something that looks valuable to the customer, but you still have to have a business model that can capture value, right? It's not... Uh, Businesses haven't lived and died on just, oh, that was a good idea, or bad idea. You could have a great idea, but your ability to execute, your ability to uh, maneuver in complex waters, right? all of those things also that need to come to bear, and, and then how do you keep improving? And that's where I see mature organizations get in trouble where they uh, they tend to uh, try to sell their org chart rather than sell value to the customer. Totally. Like, and those those I see are, are big struggles – Um, so you have stacking the bricks, uh, then you, you recently released tiny NBA, Uh, and so, uh, to me, you know, there's a hundred short lessons in there, uh, and it feels kind of like almost, uh, like modern business version of like kind of Zen cones that, you know, things to remind you, to ground you. Uh, but can you walk me through the process on where that came from? And also let me know if I'm on or off point. I don't want to misrepresent the book, but uh, if you want to like kind of frame the book and how you got there.
0: The Zen cons reference is a great one and it's not the first time I've heard it. Uh, so I, I like hearing it. It's one of my, I, it's one of my favorites. And, and honestly, I think it one of the tricky things about creating a book is people have a lot of expectations for what a book is and this book kind of bends those rules it doesn't entirely break them but it definitely bends the bends the expectations in that uh i've read a lot of business books i'm presuming you've read your fair share of business books and i'm sure most people listening have as well i think a lot of business books break down into a couple different categories one of them is the everything you need to know about x the textbook business book, right? Right. Uh, And those are useful in an academic setting, perhaps to give you sort of a wide sweeping landscape with very little depth or things that are maybe perceived as depth, but you wouldn't necessarily be able to map them to the uniqueness of reality, right? A lot of times these books paint things as a fairly linear process. I think a a traditional MBA is a good example of a textbook business book, even though it's obviously much more than a book, and that it is meant to give you structures and models and things like that. And then you plug them in and use them to make decisions. The other end of the book spectrum is the usually starts with a blog post uh, that's been kind of workshopped. One really good idea, maybe a couple of solid adjacent ideas, and then 17 some odd examples to kind of help you uh, identify with the problem. right? And that's what those stories are there, is that to bring you in and go and really believe in it, that you understand and are sort of connected to the problem, the solution, there's a form and a function, I get it. The trouble with both of those formats is they require a lot of time and attention of the individual reader, which makes it harder for them to go back to. The number of business books that I've gone back to repeatedly is vanishingly small. A lot of them were written 20, 30, 40 plus years ago. So when it comes to stuff that the modern context, not a lot that is like truly evergreen, reference material that is going to shape my thinking and my strategy versus tell me what to do. And so with that landscape and the fact that, you know, we've got some books that we always recommend people read and they're actually, some of them are listed in the book, uh, books like Badass by Kathy Sierra. Kathy Sierra is one of my favorite authors, one of my favorite people contributors on this planet. Badass is an incredible book both it also kind of breaks the mold of what a book is in terms of format, but is there to help reframe problem solving from the point of view of, of the user. It's not about making badass tools, it's making about, about making badass users. Um, how to win friends and influence people. You know, perennial. I can read that a million times, and every time I see a new, shiny little, oh, how did I miss that last time, right? And I feel like that the book will never get old. Some of the examples are, are dated for sure, but the, the core of it is human, right? So the question then becomes, if I'm going to sit down to write a business book, what book do I need to create? And the the, the core of this book started as a challenge to write down 100 things i didn't even know what the thing was going to be were they going to be lessons were they going to be prompts were they going to be questions observations some of them would be links to other articles but it was a hundred things that if somebody is trying to orient themselves in this world of business and to get even more specific to orient themselves in this world of building businesses that last right i mentioned earlier when you asked me to start talking about my background i'm not interested in businesses that you grow really big and then sell to some you know fortune 500 100 like that's just not it's not interesting to me i don't think there's all there are things that are wrong with it but i'm not here to judge them on today's show What I am interested in is reminding people that that is the edge case, not the norm. And to remind people that building businesses that provide value and are designed to last and are designed to create the freedom and opportunity for you for as long as you want to is both real and valid. And I suppose in a third factor also the majority, right? The majority today and the majority through all of history. So what I tried to do with that sort of Zen cones approach is with those hundred lessons, it's each one of these lessons could be a chapter. Some of them could be a whole book, but instead of give you that whole chapter, a whole book, I give you a couple of sentences and the encouragement to spend 30 seconds or a minute with those couple of sentences and think about it and think about what it, you know, is it advice you've heard before? No. Cool, how does it show up for you? Is it advice you have heard before? Cool, are you using it? Yes, great, how is it working? You're not using it, why not? What's in the way? And so it's, it's every page, you can sit down and read this book and I'll read in air quotes if yeah. you could see me. You can read this book cover to cover in 30 minutes the it's a quick read but if you give it time or maybe more importantly my hope is that people will go back to it and you know if you're having kind of a funky day or you're feeling weird about a decision or uncertain go back and just like grab three or four pages and read them they might not clearly have anything to do with the thing you're trying to solve but hopefully they kind of bring you back to a, a sense of center a sense of priority and maybe they speak to you i mean I've, I've heard from from some of the test readers that they went back to it just a week or two after reading it the first time and picked a random page and they're like that is exactly the thing i needed to hear today i don't know how that happened um but i think there's something cool about having uh my, my goal is not to deliver a, a brand new innovative message it's to remind you of the really core critical thoughts and themes that need to be in your head at all times and are really easy to forget and to put them all in one place so you can come back to them as often as you want or need to.
1: Thanks. Yeah. Cause a, a few things that I really appreciate about it. One is that it feels like what we might call in design principles, right? So it's thing, things that are almost underneath the surface guiding where we're going. And especially as the world becomes more complex, I think you know, it's the, Kind of the the weird duality with complexity is complex adaptive systems don't yield to previous best practices, but they can mm. be guided by some general principles. Right. So if you think of like a, a flock of birds or a swarm of bees, uh, stay close to your neighbor and not too close. When one turns, you turn and and how how you can you can maneuver changing changing situations. And that's one of the things where I see businesses and even classic NBA kind of case study elements getting in trouble is because then somebody thinks that is the answer when it, it leaves out a lot of context and context matters. And so I love that, that principles approach. And then one of the other things I really like is in, in kind of the agile lean world, there's so much emphasis on speed. And I think, I think we need to be fast and accurate. And I think it's hard to be accurate when we don't reflect. So I really, I really like your, your intentionality about that reflection and just, just that check-in to see if that applies or not.
0: Yeah, I, I love that you pick up on the speed component because it's not something I say explicitly in the book, but, uh, but it's shown up a bunch of times in these conversations. The notion that, I mean, I think in modern business, speed has become the default good, right? If you were going fast, you were doing a good job. And that it's is become, just not To me, not it's
1: true. become like, it, yeah, an excuse to deliver shitty products and services.
0: I, I think in in a lot of cases that's really true. Yeah, we got so, it out the door. <laughs> yeah, and so like on one hand, I want to challenge the notion that speed is the is the the north star or the thing to calibrate for, or even to beyond challenging the notion to say, well, what instead? If I'm not optimizing for speed, what can I optimize for? And another thing that is not said explicitly in the book, but I think is sort of the uh, the foil or the complement to the implied challenge of speed is the implied suggestion of resiliency and building things that are designed to last, building things that, it's not that they're permanent. Because permanent is its own set of challenges. Is doing things that can last, so that if they need the last, they will, or so that you, if they need to be changed or replaced, you do it by choice, not because you rushed it out the door, did a shitty job, and it broke. Right. But doing things more intentionally, uh, slowing things down even just to make sure that you gave the decision, the time and the breathing room to be considered rather than everything as a knee-jerk reaction. I felt that a lot myself over the last several months when, you know, uh, w- while dealing with learning like <laughs> how to deal with a virus and, and quarantine and all these things, like ev- when everything is a reaction, the work is bad. Like work that stems from nothing but reactions is typically going to be garbage work because there's no coherence. There is no, in, no intentionality. And frankly, there's no audience for it. The audience for reactive work is whatever you're reacting to. And if that's constantly changing, then you're going to end up with this weird uh, uh, mutant of a result, right? Versus feeling the outside experience and going, whether it's good or bad, acknowledge it give it a second and then say how does this fit into my strategy how does this suggest i need to change the strategy but sort of separate the processing from the doing and treat them as two deliberate steps that alone i'm not talking about slowing down for days or weeks i'm like give yourself 10 minutes uh, <laughs> before you hit send on that email and you know, there, the, you'd you be amazed at what changes when you pause and stop and think about even seemingly minute details when you like, for me, I'm always using that time to consider the other person. So if I use the email as an example, it doesn't even need, need to be a bad thing. An email comes in the inbox, what do I do? I respond to that email because that's what email clients have trained us to do. But if I don't take the time to think about who I'm responding to Why are they sending me this email? What do I want to get out of responding, right? Because I can respond to just like tennis, whap, back over to their side of the court, and then we're just going to go back and forth. Or I can say, what do they need so that I don't get another response to this email until it's the right time? Yeah. And that's a thing that, for people who feel overwhelmed with email, I'm always like, well, maybe take some responsibility for the fact that you're not, like, yes, you've got tons of inbound email, but some of that inbound email... It's probably your fault. <laughs> so what can you do to change the way you handle email to reduce the amount of inbound uh, and it's make it less about kicking the can down the road and more about giving the other person what they really need to be self-sufficient for long enough to do the thing and maybe even see it all the way through.
1: Awesome. Thanks. Are you, you're right there. If I dig it, there's a few of uh, the specific uh, kind of elements that I, I, I want to just, yeah, yeah kind of your, your insight or how you got there. And and we've talked a lot about this. So we'll just, this one, uh, just getting a little bit more explicit, but you kind of lead off with, uh, Basically, business is not really doing uh, things that customers value. The amount of time that they focus and the energy they expend on things that aren't valuable to customers. Could you you expand on that one a little bit?
0: (laughs) I mean, I can point to a million examples. I'll put my bias on my sleeve. I learned this real hard. I cut my teeth in the digital agency world. And the digital agency world loves their award shows. I'm sure that stems from... Uh, a, a pastime, and also the fact that you know when you're in advertising you're creating ads for a client a good ad happens the client gets all the recognition, what do you get right and so when it comes to how do you motivate your employees, how do you. Um, how do you create a feedback loop inside the industry, I get why awards exist but. I also get the potential damage that can happen is once you create awards and award categories, now you're encouraging people to optimize for winning the awards instead of creating great work. And the client becomes the award instead of the person paying you and the effectiveness of that ad. So I saw that early on in my career and I've seen it in the co-working world. People are optimizing for press and PR instead of, uh, Again, deep relationships between members, they're optimizing for button seats, instead of people connecting with each other. And they're optimizing for these really short term, visible, often highly visible wins that create a hungry beast to be fed. And you need more of that thing. And the more that thing needs to be fed, the more you're pulling energy away from the thing that really matters. And so even if you know what the thing that matters is, it is so easy to get distracted. And I just see a lot of that happen uh, in in all industries and categories I've worked in. People just get their priorities screwed up somewhere. They get glamored with, you know, fame and um, notoriety and all those things. And I mean, even when you're hearing somebody like me on a podcast, like that implies that I have some level of success. Question that, <laughs> like That's... is a good thing to yeah. do and then decide, even if it is true, is that what you need to achieve the next goalpost for you and the people who you serve? And if you going and doing a podcast tour in no way serves your audience or your customers and it's just serving your ego and your desire to hear your own voice and i'm saying this as someone who really enjoys podcasting and doesn't mind hearing his own voice so i can call myself out on this but i get on these shows with the goal of trying to tell a story or give an example that somebody can actually take home and use or reflect on because I have a sense of who's listening and because I have a sense of what problems they might have and how I might be able to help. For me, the podcast appearance is not just to add another name to my list. It's because I know Matt's got an audience of cool, interesting, interesting, creative people. And if I can help one of them, then us sitting here having this conversation is a hundred percent worth it to me.
1: But yeah, early in my career on kind of uh brand and marketing communication side of things you know, that was, I don't know why it 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 was it really burned me that yeah the amount of energy that was spent on here are the awards that we won rather than talking about the the business value they created for their customers like here here's how we moved the needle for this customer uh, and and then yeah so I I love that one uh, want to dig in on the the notion of flintstoning can you explain that for the audience
0: so flintstoning is the well, I'll back up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the folks that Amy and I have taught through Stacking the Bricks, the main audience for Stacking the Bricks are people with creative skills. So a lot of designers and developers, people who can build software and tools, right? A lot of people out there don't have those abilities. And so Flintstoning is not always the, first, uh, uh, the most useful lens for them, but I'll, I think it's valuable nonetheless. Um, if your instinct when you need to solve a problem is to build a tool to either automate or solve that problem for you instead of cobble together off-the-shelf stuff to make sure that the problem even needs solving. People will pay to have the problem solved, that your thesis on how the problem can be solved is right. We call that Flintstoning. Like the cars that Flintstones drove, there was no motor. It was just feet out the bottom, <laughs> pedal till you go, right? And yeah, it doesn't scale. That's okay. I get f- real human contact with the problem and the... Uh, the problem area and all those kinds of things. So in the context of the tiny MBA, the reminder here is is to avoid over-engineering and over-complicating your solutions, whether you're a technical person or not. I think it's really easy to imagine, especially if you're a designer, to imagine a really well-designed system, a set of you know interlocking parts, pieces, uh, whatever it is, and realize that No plan, really, even the best research plan survives contact with reality for very long. So what is the Flintstone version of that? How can you kind of hold it together with shoestring and bubblegum just long enough to make sure that it actually works? And as soon as you know it works or specifically how it doesn't work, that will inform the more permanent, maybe more engineered, uh, as well as even just the the ability and how reasonable it is to um to invest in creating something that is more permanent things like that
1: yeah i love i love it because i see where i see uh lots of organizations get in trouble too is uh the lack of kind of iterating through that kind of desirability and feasibility phase they just jump right to here's what we're going to do and can spend a lot of money on something that flops because they didn't understand the problem or they didn't have that human connection Question for you, one one more that I want to dig into, because uh, uh, you know you you're a passionate person, talked about lots lots of lots of energy. Uh, but one of the things you talk about is passion as output rather than input. Can you can you talk about kind of that lesson and how you came to that?
0: So, again, this is sort of through the lens of stacking the bricks. I see a lot of creative people show up and want to. They narrow their choices based on what they're passionate about. And part of the reason for that is because there's this intertwined confusion about passion and motivation, right? I think it's good to optimize for things that motivate you, but I think when you intertwine them, you get confused about where motivation comes from. And the way I look at it is for a lot of things, especially things that you are not instantly good at, You need motivation to put in the work and get the reps to learn and practice so you can get good at it. But passion itself actually comes from the process of getting good at something. So starting out bad at something doesn't mean that you're not passionate about it. It means you don't have a feedback loop to show you a sense of progress. And so what we try to encourage folks to do is say, rather than looking for things that you're passionate in, or rather, rather than limiting yourself to things that you're passionate in, find things that are potentially valuable and that will give you an opportunity to learn and grow, because from within the learning and the growth, you can find that passion. And more maybe the better way to look at it is like you can cultivate that passion. Like passion is not this inert thing that's either in you or out there. It's the result of doing a thing. And doing it with some again, some repetition and some consistency and the feedback loop of growth. If there's no feedback loop of growth, it is very hard to be passionate about something. So that's why people feel like I'm not passionate about that. What they're really saying is, is I didn't do it long enough to feel like I was good at it. Kathy Sierra talks a lot about this in a lot of her design work is uh, there's, a, there's a curve and there's a, I think she calls it the trough of suckitude. And the <laughs> trough of suckitude is how long you are willing to be bad at something before you give up. And... In my experience, the longer somebody has been good at most of the things that they do, right, Pro- working professionals like you and me, and the people listening, if you've been good at stuff for a long time, it's been probably been a while since you were truly bad at something. And I'm just—we're all guilty of this. This is not me pointing fingers. I think it's just a part of the way our brains work. So we tend to go to things that appear new, but when I say new. They're new-ish. They are building on old, you know, our old skills and things like that. Like, truly going back to zero is rare. That's a good thing, except for in the occasions where you really need to learn something new. And it's been so long since you were new that you try something new and you're not instantly good at it and you go, oh, shit, maybe I'm broken. And that's the thing that I see kills more people and more more. Um, pursuits is them trying something not instantly being good at it or worse, just being downright bad at it and then internalizing that as I am bad and then they run away and never try again. Instead of what's i guess a more growth mindset which is i'm bad at this now but there are people that i can learn from who have gotten good at it let me go study right. how they went from being bad to being good and see see who, what help i can get see what uh structures might exist see what milestones exist between i've never done this before and i can do this proficiently it's not a zero to one there's probably a thousand invisible milestones along the way so the best way to find the passion is is to find those first few milestones and commit to them and the sense of progress that comes from them will will uh i think result in the passion that people need to stay motivated to do the work for the long haul
1: thanks yeah it's funny you you know you're talking about suckitude uh i was um talking with Adam Hansen recently so he's from ideas to go and co-authored Outsmart Your Instincts and it's a behavioral approach to innovation and one of his personal beliefs is that you have to believe in something uh enough that you're willing to suck at it right is that you I, I and, totally and, agree and it is like you said getting in the reps and that's one one of the things that we probably could have a whole other episode on is just practice repetition and so many things in business where You'll see somebody not put in many reps and then go do something and and they're surprised that it failed where like music theater arts right the amount of time that goes on behind the scenes to get ready for something right i mean football players uh, the the amount of hours they put in a week for one hour of game time right the yep. musicians the amount of time they'll put in before a show uh so i love the idea of reps uh one of the things we, we talk a lot about in the podcast too is advice, so as we're getting close to the end, either what was some good advice that you've had that sticks with you, or uh, stealing from Austin Kleon, steal like an artist, is that when we're giving advice, we're talking to our our younger self, what might be some advice that you wish you would have had early on? One of the
0: things that comes to mind when I think about early being early on in my career is I mean I think it's some of it is tied to what I was saying before about speed um, the speed to judge Uh, and early in my career I was I mean let's be honest I was a young white dude who made websites and thought he knew what he was doing and so I I certainly did and said some things that uh, I'm sure made people think less of me i'm sure burned bridges you know for all the bridges i built i'm sure i burnt others along the way um i think the the lesson here is like patience pays off and it takes it's it's worth putting the time in uh and i and more specifically that's in relationships and realizing that the if you come at it through a lens of is there a relationship to be built here that is different from do I like this person or not, right? It's really, really tough to make a judgment from the outside. The The only sort of consistent thing I have found is that, that can be like a, a reason to keep somebody at arm's length is, you know, that they themselves have done or created harm to other people knowingly so like what like people make mistakes but when you find out you know it. you keep doing it that's a problem those people keep at arm's length and also people who enable those people so the, those are the two categories that i'm still really pretty consistent with but everybody else even if i am uncertain i think i'm more comfortable going into a conversation uncertain now and knowing that uncertainty is a good place to be and it allows me to form sort of a a more complete honest picture of that person um i think i think giving relationships the time they really need and deserve is the thing that has paid off the most and it took me a while to really figure out what that looked like and meant early in my career because a lot of it was just like i gotta get the work done i gotta get the next project i gotta show off my new skills those kinds of things but it's really you know i can look at a few dozen relationships that i've now had for 15 years and even with the book coming out people who are buying the book now that i haven't talked to in over a decade but we can pick up the core connection that we right where we left off and i think there's more of that in our lives than we notice than we invest in and that we think to turn to in times where we need it and i think that's part of what life is all about is is to have those relationships with people before you need them and also tap them even when you don't need anything just be like hey how you doing right relationships are not transactions relationships can be for transactions relationships are a platform that allow transactions to happen in a new and better way so for me it's like invest 90 percent in the relationship with no expectation of a transaction so that if one day when there is an opportunity for a transaction to happen um i've got all the the cards stacked in my favor
1: and there's already a foundation of trust, right?
0: Exactly.
1: Yeah. So thank you so much for joining me. Uh, with uh, folks listening, where, where might they get a copy of Tiny MBA?
0: I'm so glad you asked. So Tiny MBA <laughs> is available at tiny.mba. That's the whole website, tiny.mba. That'll take you to, or you can Google it, the Tiny MBA mm-hmm. Uh, And that'll allow you to order in paperback or a digital ebook. We are also on Amazon for a Kindle edition. So you can buy the Kindle edition on Amazon dot whatever, wherever you are in the world. (laughs) Um, And uh, the books uh, come with some extra digital goodies as well, uh, which are easier for us to deliver if you're buying directly from us. So the tiny dot MBA option is generally going to be your best one.
1: Right on. Alex, thanks so much for joining me. It was a pleasure having you here and uh, felt like I could keep talking for, for hours on on all these different topics. So uh, thanks for coming aboard, sharing your wisdom and your journey. I, I appreciate it.
0: Thanks, Matt, I appreciate you having me and to all the folks that are listening. Uh, if you pick up a copy of the book and you've got a, you know one of the 100 lessons you want to talk about, shoot me an email, alex at tiny.mba or I'm pretty active on Twitter too. You can uh, message me at Alex Hillman over there.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much. Have a fantastic day.
0: Cheers, you too.